You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me... Yet again, for the first time in 2021, my co-hostist with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, Kyla. So glad to be with you and uh, looking forward to an exciting 2021 that will improve in so many respects over the year. Yeah, I mean, given how the first week of 2021 has gone. I am not holding out any hope that I've said this it, year. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The 20th is the real, the real New Year's. The, the, the 20th. Uh, the, the 20th of January this year is the real New Year's. The Biden inauguration. Exactly. When some crazy Trump supporter assassinates Biden. Don't even talk like that. Yeah, but it's a realistic possibility. Well, of course it's a realistic possibility. And of course also saying it was a realistic possibility that their that their government would be overrun by Trump supporters. And because they said they were going to do that. Um, and hopefully they uh, have better protection for Joe Biden than they had for their Congress and Senate. Well, I, I my hope is that they won't have a big, giant, public, ceremonious swearing in. Because when they do those big, giant, public, ceremonious events, they turn into super spreader events. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be doing it. And yes, it'll be fewer people at Biden's inauguration than there was at Trump's. Um, but uh, that's the way it goes. Yes, that is how it goes. Anyway, um, this is like our first actual podcast in three weeks. Because we did a podcast the week before Christmas. Then our next podcast day fell on Christmas, so we took it off. And then our next podcast day after that fell on New Year's Day, so we did our best of 2020 episode. Did we? Yeah, hindsight's <laughs> 2020. Okay, ha ha. Okay, well. No, no, I mean, I. I just mean, you weren't I, there. I, I, I was. I did it without you. You did it without me. That's fine. Yeah. Point is that uh, at the beginning of 2020, I started using that as a phrase, and then later on, other people caught on. And I thought I. I mean, I think I invented it. Not that hindsight's twenty twenty, but using it for twenty twenty. No, you didn't invent it. For using it for twenty twenty. Plus, it only really makes sense when you're doing a best of twenty twenty or worst of twenty twenty or you know a re- reflection on twenty twenty. Whatever. Well, it's probably a great podcast. I'll have to listen to it. You should. It'd be all your favorite moments from the year. And it probably won't be me. It'll be your guests or something like this that are not me. Now, Paul, I want to start this podcast with a shameless bit of self-promotion. You go right ahead, Kyla. It's your, uh, it's your show. I have uh, published two books. This is the big secret. It's so, out. So some people, you know, were looking at the, uh, at the pandemic and thinking my extra time at home, my extra time not in the office, I will work on that book that I always want to publish. You have not really had any extra time because it only really slowed down for you for like two weeks at the end of March when you had COVID. Yeah, but I and you spent that time working. working. Yeah. <laughs> I spent that time resolving all of my files for the next two months. <laughs> so the um, you never really did take a break, but you sort of took a break. You went and checked yourself into a hotel. Yep. Uh, in Nelson, the Hume Hotel, lovely hotel. And you... Shout out to the Hume. Yeah. And you wrote <laughs> two books. I wrote two books. Yes. And, two. Uh, one book 
you were requested to write and one I recommended that you write. Well, no, I don't think so. I want some credit. Okay. Well, I'll give you credit where it's due, like you read the draft manuscript of one of the books and provided input. Yes, but I also suggested that you write a book on cross-examination. Oh, yeah, but I I was always, you know, toying with the idea and you, you had suggested it and I was like, yeah, if this douche can write a book on cross-examination, referring to like literally any douche that wrote a book on cross-examination, then why can't I? That's not nice to those people who wrote books on cross-examinations, but... I said the douches, only the douches. There's not that many books on the, <laughs> there, there on cross-examination, which was part of the reason I suggested that you do it. Right. So Kyla teaches... I'll leave it, I'll leave it to our listeners to figure out crosses. which ones are written by douches. Kyla teaches... So it actually, I do get some shout out on it, I think, because the... Uh, the um, we should probably start with the introduction of your book and talk a little bit about it more, but then I will tell you my history behind you writing that book, because I have some history behind it. Okay. Well, the point is that we'd all always bandied about the idea of me doing it, but, like, actually doing it was another thing. And then I was approached by LexisNexis to Oops. say, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, funny story, but I have. And here are some things I've thought about writing books about. Yep. So cross-examination was an interesting thing. When I first started practicing, uh, you know, I went through my articles and I was working in a criminal firm with reputable criminal lawyers and nobody really had uh, great advice for me on cross-examination. They just gave me some tips. And of course, I took, uh, I took advanced advocacy in university and that didn't seem very scientific, although, you know, I enjoyed it and our instructor was lovely and I think good. Mm -hmm. So when I first started practicing, I thought, I realized, oh my God, this is my career. I'm going to be cross-examining people. I better figure it out. So I took out every book I could out of the law library um, in the uh, Supreme Court, in BC Supreme Court. I took them all home. I read them all and I summarized them all. And then I looked at what was the same in them. And I made 35 cross-examination tips. And I started working on my cross-examination method. Now, years later, decade after this almost, Kyla Lee became my article student. And I did my best, as I have with any student who showed any real aptitude, to teach her to cross-examine. And she picked it up and took it so much further than I had uh, ever instructed her on. But we had, I think, better instruction in our office as a result of me going through that um, than a lot of people would have in their career. Sure. Um, and then you made it more almost scientific, but also found, uh, you know, sort of these things that you've discovered over the course of your career and the way that people behave when they're on the witness stand that has allowed you to write yeah. this. There's only certain types of witnesses and everybody falls into one of those boxes. It's just figuring out which box they're in. Well, they might, there might be some crossover. Oh, sure. You can be in more than one box at the same time, but you're never not in any of the boxes. Yep. So... You uh, you wrote that book, and I was uh, I was uh, that's the one that I guess I got to read. Yeah, but I wasn't going to hype the the cross examination text available for pre order on Lexus Nexus but on I'm the podcast. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, though. I'm looking forward to reading it, and I'm looking forward to getting it for all the I know when I get my copies. Lawyers in the office. Um, and I'm also looking forward to the uh, second edition and the third edition, and eventually it should be the. Uh, the book on cross-examination that students in Canada get because it's pretty clear, straightforward, and smart and readable. Next step, teaching a course on cross-examination at Allard Law.
Well, you already teach it in our office. Yeah, I know, but I want to teach it to law students. Well, you know, I often think that um, sort of the way that I see people muddle their way through cross-examinations, people should have a, uh, a better system and have thought about it more. So that's not the book I wanted to hype. I'm it sure was the it second book because this is the Driving Law podcast. And it's about immediate roadside prohibitions in Western Canada, dealing with British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan's immediate roadside prohibition schemes. It's interesting because there's schemes like the ADP scheme across the country now. And we in British Columbia have probably advanced this thing further in, in litigation than anywhere, I'm assuming. Yes. In fact, as I was researching for my book, I realized there's basically no litigation about Saskatchewan's scheme. And as far as Alberta's concerned, the litigation about Alberta's, um, Alberta's AALS, which was replaced now with the, the new scheme. The IRS. Yeah, the IRS. The litigation about that pretty much stopped when people had the power to consider the charter and after the constitutional challenges. Yeah. So there is really no litigation. And I think for lawyers listening from other provinces, if you're thinking, man, I'd like a way to get my name out there, to make more money, to do more good things for the law, to do better for my clients and get better results for them, get into challenging these schemes. Well, it's also kind of interesting. I mean, the, the all the things that you've run, all these different judicial reviews and that other people have run, um, have really clarified the law, and I think there's so much room for it to grow, and it is all administrative law, and the future is admin law in many respects. Um, so I think it's uh, for that purpose, seeing you know where the state of the law is in BC and understanding the you know the the early states of the law in Saskatchewan and Alberta uh, could be quite advantageous. And if I was a young lawyer in Saskatchewan or Alberta right now, or even an old lawyer who decided, you know what, I want to take this thing on. Uh, your book is uh, obviously the sort yeah. of the first thing they need. Well, I mean, the chapter on British Columbia is your roadmap on the challenges you need to bring in your province. Yep. Read the ones that were won, read the ones that were lost, and bring the good ones and fix the bad ones. Well, lawyers have wanted you to come and explain it to them. I, um, I do. And you did and go lecture in Alberta about it. And now all of those people should be picking up your book. And those who didn't uh, didn't couldn't go for those lectures, I'm sure it's much more detailed. But for all of those people who couldn't go, there it is. There it is. Okay. Congratulations, author. Thank you. I was in traffic court today, yeah. and you and I have talked on this podcast, and you and Jan Semenov have talked on this podcast about the problem with police officers and safety in breath testing. Huge issue. And officers not wearing masks. I was shocked to see that a police officer in traffic court was wearing the mask as a chin strap. Great. The entire time. Mm-hmm. It was super cool. Super cool. I even asked him to put it on and he put it over his mouth but not his nose. Great. Yeah, yeah, super but annoying. This is the you tweeted about this though. Today. Yes, yeah, and the North Vancouver RCMP responded and um, this is the same said that thing. they're going to re remind the officers. But I thought it was interesting as a lead into our next topic to bring up See the, the cavalier attitude of police officers. Cavalier to... attitude of police officers towards safety in the pandemic. But Paul, 
there's an easy solution. There is an easy solution. We should back up a little bit, and, and people may not be overly enthusiastic about the summary, but here it's going to come. Uh, when the pandemic struck, one of the first things I thought as I was flying back from the United States before going into isolation was everybody who's blowing into an ASD is at risk of the person who blew before. And um, apparently so did the manufacturer of the approved screening devices thought that too. They published on their website at the uh, in mid-March cleaning instructions for their various handheld breath testing equipment and talked about some of the risks. Mm -hmm. Then I went on the news about it, and I released two videos about it, and they pulled that off their website. Well, they were probably um, petrified of were getting sued. Worried about getting sued. And I also talked about the possibility of coming up with a safer mouthpiece for it. And I actually went to the point of investigating it. I talked to a designer about it um, and thought about uh, trying a 3D printed version of it. And then I thought, what the hell? I don't have the time for this. Because <laughs> um, I don't have the time for this. But I mean, somebody, you know, you can get the I wrote anything. two books. You couldn't you, design a safe, well, safe I, breath tester? I designed it in my brain <laughs> and made some sketches. But the point is, I would have had to have manufactured it. So here we are. Just this week, we discover that... Uh, intoximeters, or intoximeters, if you wish, um, of uh, St. Louis, Missouri, who produce the Alcosensor FST. FST that we use in British Columbia. And the Intox ECIR2. Which is the breath testing instrument that we use in Alberta and British Columbia, uh, and same with the FST, um, has produced now what they have registered the trademark for, the test-safe mouthpiece. Traps expelled bacterial and viral particles from an exhaled breath sample. Mm -hmm. So our concern all along has been that it is fundamentally unsafe during a pandemic to be using roadside breath testers because you can inhale a pathogen from the device, even though it's a fresh mouthpiece every time. And everybody's like, oh, how would you inhale a pathogen? Well. Yeah, there's all these different ways you can do it. They've also, actually looked at it. and. Yeah. Discovered, yeah, and realized you can inhale a pathogen. Um, and, um, of course, every police officer was at risk. And we've had clients who have been diagnosed with COVID who are out driving around. Blowing. Blowing into ASDs because the symptoms are often similar to impairment. And pause there for a second. Would you like to know the ethical dilemma that you're in as a lawyer when your client tells you that they were COVID positive and trying but failing to blow into a roadside breathalyzer because you have to keep that privileged but you know that a police officer has been seriously exposed well half and the time is exposing though, their colleagues sometimes they've told the police yeah i was diagnosed with covid and please don't out, believe them though i'm out driving around um but um we've had these people who have refused who have been terrified of getting covid from the police officer uh, and, uh, you know, often have had nothing to drink and they've said, look, I've had nothing to drink. I've got asthma. I've got diabetes. I've got some other underlying condition. I don't want to blow into your damn machine. I don't want to be near you. And they're terrified and they end up with a refusal, uh, 90 day driving prohibition in BC and all of the horrible consequences that come with that. Well, it turns out the manufacturer has recognized this and they've come up with a, a mouthpiece addition to be put on the end of the mouthpiece that the person is blowing into. Uh, and it is, uh, again, it's called the test safe mouthpiece. It has um, a uh, filter in it and a one-way ball valve, a check valve. And this is because who might be at risk of infection? 
a subject who is exposed to infectious germs deposited from earlier use or maintenance of the instrument. How do you know that the guy who did the calibration doesn't have COVID? You don't. How do you know the guy who cleaned it doesn't have COVID? You don't. Um, who else? A subject who is exposed to infectious germs produced by a contagious instrument operator. Oh, you mean like those police that wear their masks as chin yeah. straps? An instrument operator who is testing a contagious subject. <laughs> yeah. An instrument handler or maintenance technician who touches infectious germs that have been deposited on the instrument. You mean like a guy at a roadblock handling dozens of driver's licenses in a night? Yeah, exactly. So the manufacturer now is telling you, police, that you better go buy test-safe mouthpieces. Now, what do we tell our clients? Now the manufacturer has well. conceded very, uh, in a very definite manner. We can't tell them to refuse. It's not a required piece of equipment under Canadian law, but it should be. And our governments should be writing legislation now, using their emergency legislation passing powers to pass the legislation now to approve and require these test-safe mouthpieces. Well, it seems to me that this is now a recommended device to be used with this um, AlcoSensor FST that we have in British Columbia. And one could uh, argue that in a pandemic, there is no other device they could use but this test-safe mouthpiece. The thing that I found most striking about Intoximeter's little release about this, which, like their little ad, or I don't know what this is. This is a, document, this is a PDF like a pamphlet. pamphlet that was yeah. on their website. Um, the, the thing that strikes me the most is there's a paragraph here that says, independent third-party testing at the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's, <coughs> not independent, testing lab, has validated our own in-house testing by demonstrating that the use of the mouthpiece does not adversely impact instrument accuracy in measuring breath alcohol concentrations. Is this not intoximeters conceding that they knew about the problem in March, but didn't and couldn't do anything about it because they were worried NHTSA was going to get mad because tests might be slightly lower by filtering out some alcohol in the blowing? Well, it, the other issue, too, is there's a filter in there and there's a one-way valve. Your your breath has to go through a lot more space. Well, they, they do NHTSA, have... But NHTSA... They, have, they measured the flow resistance. I get that. But NHTSA is dealing with American law, which does not have refusal allegations. And if the any flow resistance is increased, it increases the probability of a person who has difficulty breathing to start with um, providing a sample. And NHTSA is not going to be worried about that because they don't give a damn. If you don't blow in the States, you're not charged with not blowing. In Canada, you are. The Sort of a different issue because I'm an advocate of these things and I don't think the police should be using AlcoSensor FSTs, period, right now. Well, I'm and with I think you. Everybody I'm with who you. refuses I, I just, should I'm, be entitled to I'm refuse. thinking cynically about it. I think that they didn't do anything. They recognized there was a problem. You know, they pulled their documents and they didn't do anything because they were worried that whatever they were going to do might make some alcohol disappear a little bit and that that would either get them sued by, like, the families of a drunk driving, you know, victim, or alternatively get them criticized by police and wreck all their contracts to supply ECIRs and ECIR2s and DMTs and algo sensors to police forces. Multi, 
million dollar operation they've got going on. I really want one of these mouthpieces and I'm not going to be able to get one for a long time. You can order them. Yeah, bulk order and I doubt they'll sell any to me uh, because they know me. The um, Well, I'll ask very nicely. It's amazing what you can get when you ask nicely, but I don't <laughs> get it. Uh, but I wonder if that little filter in there is basically just an N95 mask cut up. It and is. And I'm wondering if the guy who invented N95 masks, who <laughs> makes money off of them because he patented it, uh, if they're violating his patent or if they've got the authorization from him to, uh, to use that same material. It's an electrostatic filter. Yep. So... It's, it's that's what an N95, static, right? That's the that's same as an N95. Well, who knows? Maybe he, maybe they've purchased something from him. They say it's a patent-pending filtered mouthpiece. But wouldn't it be interesting going forward if it wasn't just this because we have a pandemic, but that they were using filtered mouthpieces just all the time because there's all sorts of other shit you can catch. Well, exactly. And the AlcoSensor 4 used to protect you because it had a one-way valve mm -hmm. and it exhausted out the back. And my mouthpiece was slightly different. My mouthpiece replaced the entire mouthpiece. This is like a two-part one. So you have to use the same mouthpiece that you would have, and you have to put this thing on the end of it. Uh, mine, the one that I designed, was going to replace the whole thing, and it had a vent to blow out the side. Right. So it had a little straw pipe that would blow out the side. And it had basically the, the one-way valve from an AlcoSensor 4. But well, this is huge. Maybe this is we should, huge. Maybe we should reach out to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth and suggest that he get the police forces in BC to equip themselves with many, 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 many of these. Speaking of Mike well, Farnworth. Well, I'm more concerned. I know you just want to segue into Mike Farnworth. Yes. Um, I would like the superintendent of motor vehicles office to recognize that the manufacturer has recognized that these things are a danger and if people who have argued that they were concerned because of their medical reasons and refused and still had their irp upheld should have their matter reviewed by the superintendent of motor vehicles office on their own accord without us having to request it well they wouldn't actually have legal authority to do that well, I, yeah, but they've done things like that in the past. But they could, say, retroactively cancel the prohibitions with little to no explanation. They could do that. And they have done that in the past. Um, the Mike Farnworth, now my beautiful segue is wrecked. Well, Mike he's Farnworth. the one who's in charge of that office, so. Well, well, let's call, let's call. Send up, send Mike this PDF. I'm, I'm going to, I will, a little tomorrow. Mike's a good guy. He's uh, become a hero I think, of the... I think it's uh, Minister Farnworth. <laughs> Minister Farnworth is a good guy. He's become a hero of British Columbia with his uh, straight talk Yep. on the pandemic. And, and reference to idiots. And pithy, pithy comments that yeah. end up in the news every time. Including an editorial he recently wrote, um, which has been published in many news outlets, referring to the speeding idiots in BC. Yep. Well, it's interesting because they brought in the photo... Um, red light uh cameras speed. speed cameras so intersection speed cameras mm -hmm. and i i have yet to see any information any study they've done anything to show a reduction of accidents at any of those intersections but um you know the people who have come to me with those tickets have all generally sort of been um indicated to me that they learned their lesson at least with respect to that intersection 
<laughs> well, you and I have been having different conversations. <laughs> I think I've had a couple of people who've gotten three or four tickets at the same intersection. Well, I know. And I suggest that maybe you should take a different route. <laughs> well, no. The, uh, I've had, I've had, the only thing I can think of is someone with two and they were both in the same week and he said, oh man, I'm going to slow down. So I'm, yeah, well. I'm hoping that that's the case, but the, the purpose of them was to reduce accidents and there's, the government hasn't come out to say that there has been, and well, obviously they should be able to do that now. They should be able to, except for we don't really have reliable data because they introduced them and then we went into a pandemic and, and road traffic dropped massively. So even if there has been a reduction in accidents, logically you can't say that it was caused by this as opposed to, you know, caused by the pandemic. So I think they need more data to be able to confidently say that. Um, what I found interesting about the the op-ed published by Minister Farnworth was that he talked about the deaths on roadways. And he said that the, the biggest number of deaths come from speed, then distracted driving, then impaired driving in that order. Which, like, okay, sure. But then five minutes later, the government turns around and they'll say distracted driving is the number one cause of death. And then, you know, six minutes after that, they say, actually, impaired driving is the number one cause of death. Speed kills, like, though, get, Kyla. Get, but get your, get your, get your get killers your straight, together. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it bothers me that, you know, yeah, all three of them are major contributors to death on the roadway. But you can't constantly flip-flop between which is the worst in your messaging. They're all bad. Why not just say they're all bad? Nine months ago, Kyla, masks were the biggest threat to us. Don't wear a mask. You'll touch your face. I'm touching my face as you say that. Yeah, but the point point is the messaging is not always, uh, is sometimes designed for something. Yeah. And at that time, they didn't want us to try and hoard PPE. And now they want everybody to wear a mask because there's plenty of masks all over the place. So um, can you trust the government in those circumstances? Uh, that just teaches people to not trust the government. It's unfortunate I understand why they did it. I think now they can start asking questions more. But, um, you know, this is just uh, the government trying to manipulate opinion. But why? Why? What I want to know is why yeah. is he writing what's, this What's the motive? right and, now? We and, just had an election. He's back in. We're dealing with a pandemic. What is the motive? Well, he, weirdly, he brings up that, like, they keep increasing the cell phone penalties, but the cell phone numbers aren't dropping. So what, why is he alluding to this being the worst and that these people are idiots and essentially something's going to happen real soon, but also not like, like taking the wind out of any argument that increasing penalties or consequences is going to make things safer? Well, it didn't with cell phones is what he's saying. So Although he then the refers to the IRP scheme. And he refers to the fact that you can get a, a high-risk driving prohibition of up to 24 months. Are we going to see, Paul, more high-risk driving prohibitions for what you and I would consider ordinary speeding? I think we're going to see IRPs on a second cell phone ticket. I doubt that. Of some sort. I doubt and that. And I think the... Um, because the range of conduct, people will not stand for that because the range of conduct that can get you a cell phone ticket is picking it up from the cup holder and putting it on the passenger seat. They might make you it lose so your it's certain aggravated days? things if you're seen no, reading sure, the screen and texting. Um, and I don't think yeah, it'll be 90 days. Checking your texts at a red light. I don't I think mean, it'll really? be 90 days. I think it'll be seven days or something like that. 
be a seven-day impound, the same with excessive speeding. I'm surprised that he wasn't coming out and saying that the excessive speeding uh, laws were somehow effective because they've had a seven-day impound. That's pretty harsh. A $368 fine, the impound, you can't fight it. All very harsh. Yeah. Has it had an effect? Probably I not. Don't, I excessive, don't know. Actually, excessive speeding tickets have gone up. Um, there were... Uh, 3,900 excessive speeding impounds in 2019, and it was up over a thousand from the year before. Well, sorry, just some random data stored in my brain. <laughs> that's fine. Anyway, what do you think he's going to do? I, I don't, I think, I think the high risk driving prohibitions. So a right then and there roadside prohibition for speed. And I think it's going to be done under the existing driver improvement program where the officer gets their secret line that they call into road safety bc they say what the high-risk driving behavior is then they serve the prohibition to the guy roadside and then the guy gets a letter from road safety bc explaining why they're being prohibited for like however many months well, i think just you, like you get for stunting or street racing i think you're going to see a seven-day vehicle impound and a seven-day driving prohibition currently you have a seven-day impound no driving prohibition i think there's going to be an automatic seven-day driving prohibition well, we'll see. Maybe we should have another famous podcast bet. Yes, we should have another famous podcast bet. $100 says high-risk driving prohibition increased use of that mechanism. We can't even remember what our, happened with our last bet. Vavilov, I lost. I oh. gave you $100. Did you? Good. Yes. Woohoo! All right. So I think there's going to be some sort of automatic driving prohibition, probably in the range of seven days for excessive speeding, in addition to the current seven-day vehicle impound. Okay, podcast listeners, you are responsible for holding us accountable uh, what did you say what was your high-risk driving prohibitions mm. increased use of them um but we are going to see a new irp uh in an interview last week mike varnworth alluded to the fact that they're working on creating an irp scheme for drug impaired driving now they already have the drug impaired driving adp but it's completely ineffective because every one that i've had to deal with has been served to the client like six or seven months after the incident, because that's how long it takes to get the urine back. Mike Farnworth said in this recent interview that once there is something in place that can quickly test for impairment by a drug at the roadside, they're going to introduce a drug-impaired IRP. So the presence of drugs or something. So maybe they'll be using the drug or drug test 5,000. No, no, no. They're testing for impairment. They're not testing for presence. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll see how so, they manage to do that because <laughs> good luck with that one. But the uh, that'll be, just be more work for you and me. But the more work. Yeah, um, I I'm noticed busy. the other thing when I went on the Toximeter's website um, that they are now selling the uh, Alair DDS two. Yep. So they are now the uh, the the authorized distributor of the uh, think, uh, the Abbott Sotoxa. Do you think they'd sell us just some some calibration cartridges? <laughs> Just please, a calibration cartridge. That's all I want. Yeah, I know. You just want to mess around with the one we've got. All we need is a calibration cartridge. That's true. I mean, I haven't fired it up in a while to see whether or not it still works. However, there could be some sort of other expiry thing in there. I know our uh, our main Drager Drug Test 5000, we had to set the date back in it in order to keep it functioning. Yeah, I did that in a live demonstration in Ohio the last time I was out of the country. And I said, I don't know if this is going to work. We're just going to backdate it in the programming right now and see if it accepts the sample. And to the shock and horror and dismay of the entire audience, 
it acted like everything was fine. You could just lie to the machine. No big deal. Well, that's an interesting thing. I've been, uh, of course, we bought all of those breathalyzers, the um, um, Intox ECIR2s and Intox ECIR1s, and I've taken apart a bunch of them just to examine them and look at them. And one of the Intox ECIR1s we got, uh, we were able to get functioning. Uh, we had all everything to make it function. And I messed around with it, and I found that I could lie to it about the simulator. Yeah. Um, I could tell it that it was a simulator of a certain value, and it would it would program itself on that basis and then give a false reading, you know, relative to that simulator. Yep. Um, which uh, is a concern, but um, especially when I started taking them apart and I noticed that there was, this was something that was really interesting, the gas um, regulators for the devices are sometimes seven pound regulators and sometimes eight pound regulators. And if there's too much gas going in or not enough gas going in, they can set themselves, program themselves inaccurately. Hmm. It's a fascinating thing I discovered when I started poking around. It's so useful having those devices and taking them apart. Except they're instruments, not devices. Having those instruments and taking them. Well, we have the devices too. We also have devices. Yes. I've taken them apart. Paul, mm-hmm. it's been a long time. It's been a long time since we had the... Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And this is like, you think this is stretching the definition of driver, but I think this man's profession is a driver. And he was working as a driver, a delivery driver for Uber Eats in China, when he tried to drop off an order at an apartment complex. The problem was that he didn't have a complete address, so the security at the apartment complex wouldn't let him in. And rather than responding in the normal way that you do when you're an Uber Eats driver and you're completely incompetent and you can't find my house even though the porch light's on and even though the address is clear and even though I give you a description in the chat... Well, up... and it shows up exactly on the map because you're yeah. like, yeah, you're like a, a half a block. Your house is, your yeah. yard's so big. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a whole block, but yeah. Whatever. It's, it's, but it's a short block. <laughs> it's a weird block. <laughs> it's a weird block. Um, then my house is in a weird location. Um, and I don't own it. <laughs> the The point is, you know, ordinarily they would message you in the app or they would call you and get the details or be like, hey, your security's not letting me in. Can you come down? So this was a, a different method. This method involved getting into a brawl with the security guard. And when that didn't go the driver's way, he decided to resort to a better method entirely by calling other drivers from other food delivery companies like Food Panda to come and also beat up the security guard. So it was like three delivery food delivery drivers all showing up like the food delivery driver gang. Well, <laughs> to they got to the stick together. They got to stick together. Dude, just to deliver some Poor sucker, his food. Oh, it was probably the <laughs> fastest way to get it to him warm. It was so funny. I think it's hilarious. Like, this is not the solution. <laughs> you, you're, 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 you're laughing at violence, Kyla. Yeah, I am laughing at violence because it's so absurd. It's absurd. Why would you phone people from other apps and have them cancel their deliveries and come beat up some dude? Maybe they'd all have had trouble with this guy. It's like a Power Rangers of... of Food delivery. It's, it is pretty amazing. 
it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I it think it's awesome. hilarious. I feel bad for the guy who got beat up, but I mean, it is funny. There's actually quite a few good, uh, ridiculous driving stories out there to start the year, so we'll have to hold back for some of them, but that's a great one. Yeah, well, we've got an entire... That was an excellent start to the year. (laughs) We've got an entire year of exciting podcasts lined up for you, but uh, now it's time to end this one. So, if you need to reach us to talk about your driving law-related issues, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. Or give us a call, 604-685-8889, and tune in next week and every Friday of 2021 for another exciting episode of Driving Law.